0: You can tell the world I said
1: so. Can't you see you got to be my mother's son-in-law? I'm obliged to give a little shout-out. My uh, my mother-in-law apparently listens to these from time to time. And, you know, for a long time now, I've argued that I really am deserving of number one son-in-law status. And, and I felt like that was in pretty much clear from, you know, the wonder that that is me but apparently uh number one son-in-law status only comes with a shout out to the mother-in-law on our internationally recognized jazz podcast so laurel this this podcast is for you
2: wow what a suck up okay
1: (laughs) we'll see if she actually
2: listens (laughs) (laughs) she's gonna miss this episode then yeah so well mr chance
0: who is that jazz
2: let's get off that hobby horse man all right are you ready i'm ready all right well welcome my friends to the show that never ends jazz bastard podcast 216 i'm pat
1: and i'm not will
2: that's right he's mike but he's not will friedwald we hope to have will on the show something came up the last minute he was not able to come Uh, we have not rescheduled as of yet we just don't know if he's going to be able to make it or not so what his most recent book straighten up and fly right uh the life and music of nat king cole did was uh put me down the rabbit hole of listening to nat king cole in a new way and uh, we picked out some albums on Nat King Cole's Capital Run to talk about on this podcast. And we're going to do that. And uh, most of them are about Nat King Cole, the vocalist. Uh, was, was that an aspect of his career that you knew a lot about? Or did you get into Nat as a singer as opposed to, you know, Nat's, of course, famous as one of the great swing jazz piano players. He has this very influential trio. But then he becomes a, a jazz singer or really a pop singer. And a lot of people in the jazz community saw that as a betrayal at the time. You know, they were very critical. So did you listen to him as the crooner much as a kid?
1: My first awareness of of him uh, goes back to one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, Mona Lisa. Um, you may remember that uh, film. Yeah. Uh, Mona Lisa, the, the great, great movie starring Bob Hoskins, a Neil Jordan film. It's like one of the one of the great, great art films of all time. I would argue. I'm a huge fan of that movie. I'm not at all.
2: But do you think the politics might be a little bit, you know, uh, you know, just in in that the big twist of the movie now we might see in a different light. Anyway, it it
1: is a great film. You're thinking of a different movie by Neil Jordan.
2: Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I am. <laughs>
1: Mona Lisa's with Bob Hoskins playing a kind of thug who gets out of jail, um, and the film. I don't
2: know if I've seen that or not. I, I got
1: well, it. You have. You I that. It involves
2: a long fucking time. The, ago. The, main, the main
1: character is obsessed with uh, Nat King Cole music, and Nat King Cole music features prominently on the soundtrack. And that's where I first became aware of Nat King Cole. I mean, like anyone in the culture, I've heard his songs, but that movie came out, I think, in 84 or 85, and I was obsessed. Like, I've seen that movie 15 to 20 times. Like, maybe more. I'm mean, like, I, I am a huge fan of that film and not at all uh, objective about it. You know, it's like a, a million-star movie for me. Anyway, you know, the soundtrack is replete with multiple songs by Nat King Cole. So that's where I first really became aware of him. And his rather freeway with a vowel way back then, (laughs) Uh, and uh, it was only later that I, you know, started to pick up on his music. And I think the first thing I grabbed was one of those, you know, those proper box sets.
2: Um, Oh, okay, yeah.
1: I I picked up, I think, the Nat King Cole story. So proper box is a reissue label, if I'm if I'm correct, if I'm not mistaken. And they uh, they do the Lionel Hampton story, the you know whoever story, and they'll. Cobbled together a box. And uh, so it was a four disc set, the Nat King Cole story, which, if memory serves, actually did feature a lot of capital stuff and less instrumental stuff. But that's where I first kind of grokked him. I think it was called um, Cool Cole, colon. The <laughs> Nat King Cole story. Yeah, okay. Cool Cole. Good old proper. <laughs> Good old proper. Um, and so that's where I, you know, first became aware of him. And I, I am not, and then until this, I think that might be the. F- almost the full extent of my uh, possession of Nat King Cole music. I'm actually checking right now. I I may have had one other thing by him, but otherwise uh, he was not someone who I had listened to like at the level of LP, right? Right. right, Yeah. He was someone who I picked up on uh, mainly because of his um, uh, because of that set. And I was aware of, you know, the, the capital years um, and then maybe later on, I kind of became aware of um, uh, I became aware of his work, you know, on, on television. Um, the um, I do have I do have the trio recordings. I do have one volume of the trio recordings. Um, so I do I, I picked that up way back. Uh, I can't even remember when I acquired that, but in 2013. I've had it for almost eight years. So okay. I do I, I am aware of some of the trio recordings. But like most people, you know, I've seen plenty of clips of his television show, a a kind of variety show where you'd have different people on, and his status as a kind of—I don't know—you'd call him a civil rights icon, but you know, having a black man on television singing, you know, pop songs and jazz vocals, surely had revelatory implications for audiences who were not used to seeing a black man headline his own television show and have white guest stars on. Yeah. Um, it surely had an effect.
2: First black so, man in their living room kind of thing. Yep. Yep. Exactly.
1: exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, uh, that's, that's kind of where, where I know him from. Um, and I can't claim to have delved deeply into his discography until this occasion where we kind of jumped in on a whole bunch of his uh, albums for uh capital. So that's my acquaintance. How about you?
2: Yeah, well, I, there was, I can't remember the company's name, but, uh, one of these out of copyright houses, uh, maybe a little bit less fancy, Laserlight, that's Laserlight, Um had a set of his basically, uh, pre-capital trio air shots and things.
1: Yeah. Five that's, what the, and that. that's what one of those, that's what I have, I have one of
2: those. That was the one that had Solid Potato Salad, the deathless song
1: about <laughs> potato salad. That I
2: just, you know, and so I knew him from that. And I got, at some point after midnight, which it'll be interesting to talk about, because that is the closest to Jazz Nat we have on on this particular program. And I didn't really collect or was aware of the vocal stuff. I got a Longines Symphony 6 LP set for like a dollar, probably in a Jacksonville basement that was a record store. Cleaned up fairly nicely. And it was just, you know, one of these record club things that in pretty decent sound, collected a bunch of his Capitol stuff, you know, just including such deathless songs as the Lazy, Hazy, Crazy Days of Summer, which I think is probably responsible for about 15% of all shooter incidents, you know, somewhere. <laughs> so I got that more recently and listened to some of that. And, you know, what really struck me from that set is, one, you know, these are really good sound recordings. I mean, Capitol knew how to record vocalists, And they made beautiful sounding music as a label back then. And then two, boy, you know, the the quality control wasn't great. Uh, There was some stuff on there. It's like some of these songs are great. Some of these I really enjoy. Some of these just make me sad. So until I read Will's book, I was not thinking of him as an album artist. And I think to some degree the marketplace is somewhat responsible for that. You know, I have through my lifetime gotten at least two complete CD sets of Frank Sinatra's Capitol Recordings, right? I mean, they're kind of, and there's like, there's a Mofi box set of the LPs that I've never got, you know, that came out 20, 30 years back. It's been considered a sequence of recordings that is part of the canon that's worth celebrating, that's worth collecting, right?
3: Unforgettable That's what you are, unforgettable, though near or far.
2: And I don't think, fairly or unfairly, they've ever done that with that stuff. Uh, You know, there are single discs that are somewhat in print. But the way I was able to track down a large swath of what he did on Capitol was this obviously European box set of LP dubs, 22 albums on 10 discs, uh, some of which are like an old EP. So until I got that together, I really didn't have any number of his vocal discs. And I don't think particularly just casually shopping, you're going to run into a lot of that stuff the way you would with Sinatra, for instance, who was more canonized. So anyway, do you want to begin with After Midnight? It, it, you know, that's one of the early ones. It's 57. Sure. And it is the jazziest of those recordings.
3: Sometimes I'm happy. Sometimes I'm blue. My disposition depends on
2: you. This is close to you know. There's this period. Nat Nat's career divides largely into two portions: the trio, which existed for a very long time and was fairly innovative. In other words, there weren't a lot of jazz trios in the 40s and, and the 50s. I mean, it was more of a big band era. And so, you know, he was very influential in forming this trio with a bass player, a guitarist. All three of them could sing. They played these very elaborate interlocking lines, played a lot of novelty songs and some vocal numbers and whatever. And really, he didn't sing at all until the story went and a crowd, somebody in the crowd you know, asked him to do it. And then he started developing this ability. And so the trio goes on for quite a while, and he's a fine pianist. And he also uh, appears as a pianist at Jazz at the – I want to say Plaza. That's not great. Jazz at the Philharmonic. Jazz at the Philharmonic, you know, uh, he is involved with those shows put on by – who's the guy running Verve? I can't think of his name right now. Uh, Norman Grant. Thank you so much. Yeah, maybe the the inoculation is starting to take effect. (laughs) And, And I got my shot this morning. And uh, he's also on a couple recordings with Lester Young. They're just fantastic jazz. Yeah. And so that career goes on for a while. And then slowly he starts moving into being a, a vocalist, you know, a front man. And, you know, the story is a lot of people that loved him as a singer didn't even know he played piano, even though he's a major swing pianist, one of the, you know, one of the handful of the greatest swing piano players His career in the second half just so much focused on him as a singer that uh, people never knew that this is something he could do and didn't think of him so much as a jazz artist, as a singer. And a lot of people in the jazz community felt betrayed or felt like he wasn't living up to his abilities as a great jazz musician. When this transition happened, he's like, look, you know, I'm a lot more successful doing this. Why do you want me not to be successful? So after Midnight's one of the last kind of jazz projects he does, the idea is, He gets in the studio with his trio, and then he has several guest musicians. Let's see if I can find their name. So he's got Willie Smith on alto, Juan Tizol on valve trombone, Stuff Smith on violin, and Harry Edison on trumpet. And Harry, of course, cameos on many Frank Sinatra and Nelson Riddle recordings in general.
1: Also uh, John Collins on guitar. Oh,
2: thank you. Uh, who I, I, I guess right as he solos a lot, right? So he's, yep. he's a featured soloist. He's part of the trio, I believe, or I, I might, you know, but the trio kind of gets towards the end is, is more of an amorphous entity. It is a group for quite a while, but later on it's kind of two guys who play with that. Yeah. So did you like After Midnight? What do you think of this collection of songs?
1: Um, I do. I don't think it's the best place to, to, it's complicated. I don't think it's the best place to hear Nat, As pianist, I think there's some good stuff here, but I'm struck with the ensemble work is actually pretty tight. Some of the numbers are are kind of, you know, exotic or arranged in a relatively striking way. Caravan is really cool. It's got all kinds of fun elements in it. You know, besides Teasel's trombone, the the percussion makes it feel kind of, you know, exotic and and othered in interesting ways. And throughout the date, I actually really liked the the drummer on this. Uh, it's not that he's super busy. It's not that um it's not that Lee Young is a drummer. It's not that he's he's a, a busier dominant presence. It's but just that's
2: Lester's brother, yeah.
1: Yeah, he's yeah, just yeah. this he's right. this Really brisk presence who kind of just keeps things cracking along. Um, uh, he's, I don't want to put it, he's like subtle but driving. Um, and, and he keeps the proceedings in order with all these different voices appearing on the album. I actually kind of like this work a lot here. I don't think he's special or spectacular. I just think he's ruthlessly efficient and kind of, you know, he, he's, he's like, uh, he's like an MC who's just gonna, who's just gonna be like, all right, this is the next act. This is the next act get off you know he just keeps <laughs> he just keeps things moving i, I really kind of dug him um there are some fine piano moments here by by cole like he could play it's just i I, f- I feel it's more of an ensemble effort there's more you hear more of the other voices here whereas in strictly trio settings um, you'll hear cole to better effect, I think. Right. This is, uh, he is not the dominant voice in terms of the musical component. Like the piano is part of the ensemble. I mean, and his he voice sings is, as well, right? I mean, this right. Is... He does sing, but his singing also doesn't dominate the affair no. either. It's no. a jazz. It's like a jazz ensemble group. It's really a, you know, a quintet or a sextet much of the time. And his vocals, while featured, aren't like the dominant thing. It really feels kind of like a, a group effort. Unlike, for example, the jazz at the Philharmonic sessions, which often just turned into cutting dates, you know, it's like who can blow better than someone else, and they rarely. I have that whole ten-disc compilation of the jazz at at the Philharmonic, and you know, it has some high points, but it has a lot of just, you know, who can blow? Got some high notes
2: too, right? Yeah,
1: (laughs) you know, it's like how long can Buddy Rich solo? Like, who gives a fuck? Um, (laughs) And this is this doesn't have that vibe. This the vibe here is. No. We're all playing together. It's like a group effort. It's like an ensemble. It's a legit, it's a legit kind of jazz date. Uh, so that Kip Cole's vocals and his piano do not dominate the proceedings, and it's very pleasant uh, in that respect. It gets really high ratings, um, and I kind of wonder about that. Meaning, meaning people who adore Nat King Cole, the things they adore him for. You know, people who like him as a pop vocalist. And to a lesser extent, the people who adore him as a jazz pianist can find him to better effect on other dates. So I'm kind of wondering why this yeah. is, is so lauded. I mean, I, it, you know, it's not lauded for the things that we think of when we think of Matt King Cole. I, I, I appreciate it as a really fine jazz ensemble date with some nice arrangements that are brisk. None of them overstay their welcome. These are all two and a half to at the most four and a half minute arrangements that gives everyone room to do what they do, but no one really dominates the proceedings, and everyone acquits themselves very well. There's no laggards here. So why this is sort of lionized as a cold ape is kind of interesting to me. Maybe there are just people who like it, appreciate it for the non-cold elements as well. I don't know. Anyway, I liked it a lot. I think it's a very strong album. I mean, I hope you like it.
2: Yeah, I I agree that I think it, it has become... Symbolically, in his catalog, a way of people reconciling Cole the vocalist on Capitol and Cole the jazz man, and it, it's got its propers, it, it seems authentic. So, that's the one that's the easy five star pick. And I agree with you, I don't think it's an outstanding example of Cole as jazzer or, or singer. And you know, I think it's a good session. I, somebody kind of ripped it another one. I can't remember where I was reading. They we're like, well, it's just routinized. You know, it's just, it's just not that great, you know, because it's all the same pattern. And I, I think another way of saying it is this is not really after midnight. It sounds no. like it's about seven at night and everybody's on the clock and they're going to do a very fine, relaxed, professional job. But they aren't letting their hair down. There's nothing super spontaneous. It is a carefully orchestrated jazz date. Showing that Nat can still play piano. Apparently, you know, as he focused more on singing, there was some anxiety in terms of his playing piano, uh, which is odd. I mean, obviously he's got great facility on it, but just a self-consciousness. And, uh, he does release a couple piano albums on, on Capitol, but they are really, as far as I can tell, at least on the first couple of listens, just mood music. You know, I mean, it's just like, okay, you know, I, I'm not in an elevator right now, so I really don't need this in my life kind of stuff. Uh, this this is not that, but yeah, I, you know, I've got an SACD version of it and I thought, well, this is the one I'm just going to love and I'm going to sit down and I'm just going to connect to it and it's going to be, and I, you know, I like it, but I don't, it's not like when I'm always dragging out, uh, it sounds great, but most of the capital stuff sounds great. You know, it, it, if you're just into pure sound, this is, it's a good run of records, but I, I think it's the one that people who are kind of, I I. To me, as I've listened to this stuff, I almost feel like the mistake has been is that the hobbyists and the music fans tend to prize, for the most part, jazz over pop singing. They take it more seriously. And so the way that music critics mostly, not not particularly Friedwald, but, but other ones, talk about, they want to emphasize Cole the jazz player. But to me, as a singer, he is and we'll talk about this, pretty fucking impressive. And as a jazz player, he's amazingly facile. I mean, he's got great technique. But I've tried listening to compilations of just the instrumental solos, say, and taking out the vocals and uh, the trio stuff earlier and whatever, and I just find my my mind slipping off them. It's, it's, it's not the feeling of jazz to me. It's the feeling of a brilliantly arranged, witty, entertaining act you know a a, a performance but I rarely get the feeling of him reacting in the moment the way my favorite jazz musicians do or even like Art Tatum where a lot of what he did was routinized but it just seems like he's he's so relaxed into it and and just so enjoying himself that it works for me and it's not that I dislike it again you know very incredibly impressive guys you know but I don't the Nat King Cole trio for me is not my favorite kind of jazz and this I'll, is I'll, not my favorite. Yeah. I I'll,
1: I'll give you the point you make about not not taking flight or not letting his hair down. I just acquired and finished listening to once through, um, Oscar Peterson's trio live at the Blue Note in early 1990s, and um, uh, they had a guitarist on that day. And I forget who it was. So it was Oscar Peterson trio with the guitarist, and I think Harry Edison is there for.
2: Oh, okay.
1: Part of the affair. He's on this as well. And what's interesting about that is there are moments when when Oscar just fucking takes flight. You know, like, you know, talk about a locked in jazz trio, right? The Oscar Peterson trio. And yet, you know, on a live day, there are moments where they're off and running. Like, you know, there are moments where you can tell everything just, you know, elevated a little bit. You know, um, there, there'd be, you know, Peterson loved his medleys. And there's a couple of times the medleys where you know the bass player or the guitarist make a call out they 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 rattle off some they do some name check to some other song that they incorporated into a little riff and peterson's off and running like he picks up and he's there he goes you know yeah so that that's a date where that's a that's a jazz piano trio date where there are moments where it's like this is unscripted We're, we're 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 gonna go ski down a unmarked slope now and let's just see where this takes us and you never have the sense with cole on this date anyway that anything isn't pre-planned. You know, everything's really competently done, but nothing is like, you know, there's you don't you know, get those moments of like, and I haven't heard any moments like that, even on the trio recordings, the earlier trio recordings, where you get the sense that Cole is like, all right, let's just see what happens. It never feels like, let's just see what happens. Yeah, I, we're going to do this thing, and I'm good at it, and, and we're, everyone's going to enjoy this.
2: Right, you know? I mean, the closest, there are moments on the Luster Young Trio stuff I've got a new baby and I swear at one point, Young just plays the wrong note and this is fucking awesome. And it just, you know, it just, it, it, it excites me to hear that. Yeah. Well, and Peterson very much out of this school, you know, he he has a trio like Nats does not sing, which is a good thing, but, and he can be a very driven lockstep performer sometimes, but I feel like he, he, if you put him on a razor's edge, he's going to tip over into, the jazz boat, the guy that is into creating new lines, trying to find out where he's going to go. And on his best nights, like you said, there's just that sense of, I mean, a lot of the stuff on MPS, I just love. A yeah. lot of other stuff, I don't like, you know, but Peterson can be very driven and, and just a little bit relentless. That's it, right why again. you want to
1: pick him up, like, on a live date, because on a particularly inspired live date, you know, fuck, he's just, right. he's hes great, like, you know. And you're like, oh, this is this is what he can do, you know. Yeah. It's like and when you and listen the to MPS stuff, live, right. Yeah. When you listen to those live dates with
2: Art Tatum, you know, it's like, oh, my God. Right. Oh, my God. And, yeah, the MPS stuff, it, it, they are quote-unquote studios, but literally it's like in the label owner's house with a few people hanging out. And yes. you can tell he's just more relaxed. Exactly. And it, it makes a huge difference. So, yeah, I mean, again, this is a very fine album. Most editions of it come with it, it started out as 12 tracks, and, and, and most have more than that. And, again, it's kind of fun to hear Stuff Smith, who probably digs in the deepest – yeah. Uh, 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 of the, of the guests, they're all fine. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's a little odd in that, like, you're just thinking, you know, if you had a swing alto player, if it had been Johnny Hodges, would it be a little bit more distinctive? I mean, I'm not trying to diss on the, you know, the, the altoist they have. He's very fine. But, you know, neither Willie Smith nor Juan Tizal are, are what I think of as great improvisers. I, I Willie's a little better than Juan, but, So it's just, he wasn't quite, you know, he didn't quite pick out guys for the most part who were just hot players. Edison obviously can improvise, but he also is just really good at kind of doing this minimalist beep, beep, beep thing and fitting into arranged sessions. You know, that was his great gift. That's why Nelson Riddle loved him. So, yeah, it's a great album. I wouldn't say this is not the Rosetta Stone to getting either side, as as Mike put it, of, of Nat's personality. It's a good session. It's, I think it's overrated. It's you know it's a four star album. I just don't think it's five.
0: Yeah.
2: And in a way, I found the other stuff more interesting. Uh, I didn't always like it better, but I felt like I learned more from it. So, if we're staying chronological, <laughs> that means we can end. Can on Can we real... say
1: anything about the anything about the Paper Moon breakout? I think that's hilarious. Oh, where he forgets. <laughs> yeah. He's, okay. well, I love it. He's there's a there's a very short um, uh, Paper Moon outtake, and because uh, they do the full take on the, on the album, but he gets halfway and he's like, I forgot the words! And the way he says it, it's like, he's just amazed. Like, oh my god, oh my god! And the producer's <laughs> like, yeah, let's do old songs that you know, you know, it's kind of... And of course, he's he just playing Paper Moon for like, you know, 15 whole years. Life. Yeah, I mean, the producer's very deadpan about it, but like, it's just funny to hear Nat King Cole like, oh my god, I forgot the word! Like, he's really just like, he can't believe he forgot the word! <laughs> I really enjoyed... Normally, I don't give a shit about outtakes, but it's just... Right. His, you know, his outtake there is, is quite cute, I think. I, I enjoy it because he's genuinely surprised that he fucking forgot the words. He can't believe he forgot the words to that song.
2: And, you know, mainly we're talking about him as a musician. I mean, one impression you get from reading the, the biography, and I've not read other books on the guy, but that has not loomed that large in my life, i got to say. But, you know, he seems to have been very sweet-natured, thoughtful guy. I mean, he was, a, you know, he was careerist. There's no question. That's not a bad thing, you know, but he was very much trying always, you know, what's the angle that's going to get the next cultural moment to pop for me? But, you know, he seems to have been a genuinely likable guy.
3: The sky may be starless, the night may be moonless. But deep in my heart, there's a glow. For deep in my heart, I know that you love me. You love me because you told me so.
2: So anyway the other 57 recording here love is the thing and this is a album that has been given various you know luxurious reissues gordon jenkins is doing the arranging here and you know gordon uh, like nelson riddle's coming up did a lot of work with sinatra and i kind of like you know where are you and what is it uh what's the other real depressing one that he said should be packed with a Gun with a single bullet in it. I can't think of it now. What's the other Sinatra ballad album
1: that's really sad? Um, um, oh, I know what you're talking about. Um, uh, something. Who? Who? Something. Who cares?
2: Something like yes, that. Yes, when no one cares. Uh,
1: something like that.
2: When no one, no one cares. There we go. The no upbeat, one cares. Too. No one cares. Great cover on that sucker.
1: Yeah, he's all lonely and smoking a cigarette by himself.
2: And you know, I. Jenkins is, is, in in fact, the person that kind of walked me through this in print was Will Friedwald, you know, and I think I've run across this sentiment elsewhere, not considered as brilliant an arranger as Riddle, but, you know, I like him on the Sinatra albums. What did you think about his contributions to Love is the Thing?
1: Well, so the first thing I have to say is um, the first song, the very first song, is prominently featured in Mother Lisa*, So as soon as I heard it, I'm like, oh yes, oh, the song. You know, I'm like, ah, you know. And again, so there's there's two things to say about this. Uh, one is the the orchestration verges on the too sweet for me. It's it's for a jazz podcast, you know, any listener who listens to this is gonna be like Hey, wait! What's 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 going on here? You know, how is this jazz? It doesn't feel very jazzy, right? Um, And the orchestrations are are I won't say saccharine, but man, they're close. Another thing is, of course, the great warm bath that is Nat King Cole's voice uh, at its best. Now here is an album that's going to foreground his voice front and buck and center, right? Oh yeah. And and you just can't but notice what an accomplished stylist he is. I never I rarely feel like that King Cole is emotionally invested in some deep and abiding way with the with the songs he sings. But he is such an a strong stylist that he puts an incredible stamp on songs. When you hear him do a song, it's hard to unhear that song or to imagine it heard a different way and when i said earlier you know that king cole has a freeway with a vowel yeah. this is the album this yeah. is the album
3: when i fall in love it will be forever Or I'll never fall in love, in a restless world
1: like this is. The way he sings the phrase, the title phrase, when I fall in love, you know, it will be forever, it's pronounced like no human being ever pronounced it before, and yet, after you hear him sing it, it, you're like, that's how it's supposed to be sung. It's just amazing. He kind of <laughs> imprints himself on on these songs, even though I don't feel like there's this emotional investment or engagement in them, right? Um, his, his version of Stardust, right? You know, Which he just, apparently
2: hated singing. I mean, it is a pain in the ass, but anyway. It's a hard, it's a hard
1: song. It's not an easy song. It's, it's a it's trumpet solo, amazing. basically, is what it is. It's not it's really. a Exactly, It's an extremely demanding song, and it's the kind of thing that Sinatra, for example, dumped from his repertoire the second his voice started to go, right? You don't hear Sinatra at Vegas taking this on. He's like, oh, fuck no. Yeah,
2: we're done with that.
1: We're not doing that, you know? So anyway, this is just a great album to take a bath in in Nat King Cole's amazing fucking voice. One has the sense that if it weren't for his voice these arrangements would be too slow. Like, they actually take too long. But his voice is, like I said, you just have such strong imprint on these songs that you don't feel like these songs are, are, are sticking around too long or going too slow. Um, it's something I noticed, again, I'm going to use Sinatra. Um, I I've talked about this before. I picked up, years ago, I got you the London set. Um, and yeah. then I went, uh, you know, on that set, you can hear some of the rehearsals, right, where he he tries to make his way through some really tough songs, these sort of slow ballads like this. And the outtakes tell you how hard this is to do. Like the outtakes, you realize, shit, just one sustained note not held right, and the whole thing comes crashing down. Like these are really delicate souffles. And you never have the sense when Nat King Cole sings this stuff, like he is in anything but absolute, total fucking control. Like, these are just really beautifully timed experiences. They don't feel drawn out. They feel like they go on exactly as long as they have to. But with the lesser vocalists, these would feel like these arrangements drag and they're too saccharine. But with his voice and the way he kind of has such a strong stylistic imprint, they feel inevitable. They feel natural somehow. Yeah. So, you know, I, I love this. I, I wouldn't call it jazz, but no, Jesus, no. it's really fucking enjoyable. I mean, you just can't, you just can't go wrong with this stuff. If you, if you like a good vocalist who's going to give you a strong read on a song that you'll, you'll be like, this guy has a take that's going to be not King Cole. You may not feel like he's engaged emotionally in the material, but you will not listen to these songs and think well gosh i just can't remember what that sounded like you know no one sounds like this guy no one yeah
2: yeah no absolutely and yeah my sense with this one was it, it just it kind of i love nat singing on it it kind of annoyed me after a while and it was like Gordon was just a little let loose, you know. He does this (laughs) commentary where, like with Frank, you know, Frank will sing something and the violins will play something back, but they're like a respectful step behind Frank, probably because he said, "Gordon, turn it down or I'll punch it," you know. And I got the feeling that King Cole is like, "No, Gordon, he's gone crazy. You know, the strings are just out of control. Like, and it's like, guys, just what the fuck, man? Just step back a little bit. You know, we don't need quite that much."
3: Once in a while he won't call, but it's all in the game. Soon he'll be there at your side with a sweet bouquet, and he'll kiss your lips. And caress your waiting fingertips.
2: And it seems a little more mechanical. It just seems... Because the one thing I really realized listening to these albums is like, oh my God, that's so fucking Gordon Jenkins, right? I mean, I've heard these yeah. moves before, and you hear them with with Sinatra, you know, there's going to be... He's going to do his best not to repeat from albums that were released within a year or two of each other the exact same moves on Sinatra's albums. But with Cole, it's like here they come again, you know. (laughs) So we are we're gonna do those things. And um yeah, this one's like whether Cole just didn't care as much or whether he had a little bit less authority in the studio or what, I just felt like Jenkins was a little bit off the leash and he needed to be put back on the leash immediately. (laughs) Which is not to say that I mean, you know, Nat this is where I realized listening to these records, like, okay, oh I get it. You know, Nat is a world class vocalist pop singer jazz singer whatever you want to call him and he's a good jazz singer i mean you know we'll get there but in a way that to me more strikingly than he is a swing piano player i mean there's just i'd rather listen to teddy wilson i'd rather listen to errol hines i'd rather listen to you know a number of piano players in that rough style i mean really oscar peterson's a kind of final development of it than necessarily Nat. just just for whatever reason you know I mean, he's he's up there. He's technically great. But if he's not with Lester Young, I, I, I don't find him very nourishing. But as a vocalist, I'm like, holy shit, you know, this guy really. And it, it, it's striking because if you hear him singing with a trio, I mean, this is years later and many cigarettes later. And, you know, the voice is amazing. You know, it really is just this instrument of beauty. He kind of he's a little bit more into the beauty of his voice than he is the story he's telling, as he said. You know, it's Sinatra, who is probably not as polished and perfect a vocalist at this moment as Nat, is always telling the story, right? He's always yes. convincing you that he's feeling it. Whereas yes. Nat is, is more a miracle of, I don't wanna say nature, cause I mean, he worked at it. I don't misunderstand me, but it's just this particular gift he had. And I think it was one reason he didn't wanna stop smoking. He was afraid that it was, you know, he kids, spoiler, he died from lung cancer very young, was that it, he believed that it was part of the reason his voice sounded the way it did. And it is super distinctive. So, and then also, you know, there's just a couple, you know, Sinatra's quality control on the albums is not perfect, but it's pretty good. And then he has all these singles, which some of the stuff you're like, okay, that's why it was a single. Cole, I think, is a little bit looser. And so, like, you know, the Gordon Jenkins song, I hadn't realized he wrote it. What is it? The, uh, I thought about Maria. Marie. I
1: thought about Marie. Yeah, yeah you know. Which you can just say that title and you can already imagine how Nat King Cole is going to treat the word Marie. You know? Uh, yeah. You can hear it in your head. <laughs>
3: I had trouble finding sleep last night. So I thought about Marie. I grew tired of counting sheep last night.
2: So I thought about Marie. And it's, you know, it's it's a, it's a solid song. It's not a great song. It's not going to become part of the American songbook vernacular or something, you know. So there's a couple in there. Uh, Love is a Thing. You know, his, he had in-house writers just like Sinatra did. I don't think they're quite of that caliber. You know, it, it's a very, very good record. But it is, I, to me, the problem is not the the soppiness, that it's an all-ballads record. That doesn't bother me ideologically or something. It's just the Jenkins needs to dial it back a couple notches <laughs> <laughs> the strings are just out it's like man i can feel that violin bow right up my oops stop stop you know it's it's just a little too much so a good record not quite the stone classic that's sometimes presented as as you know this is his great ballads album. but i've not heard i don't know that i've got a competitor for it i haven't listened to all 22 albums i got on my bootleg set have to move through those let's see who's next yeah, I guess it would be the soundtrack to a movie that you have seen, you lucky fellow, but I have not seen.
0: St. Louis woman
3: with her diamond ring. Who's that man right?
0: By her apron string Twant for powder Yeah, I need to say a little bit about this fucking (laughs) movie. St.
2: Louis Blues, and it's a Nelson Riddle joint, and we'll talk about the, the, the soundtrack in a moment, which is a great record, I think. But the movie, I've been told, is maybe not Oscar worthy, as I said.
1: No, it's not. So the movie is—it's so a fascinating. It's a fascinating film. Like it is fascinating, but uh, all kinds of wrong. Um, so <laughs> essentially, um, essentially, so here's here's what it's supposed to be about, and then here's my take. It is supposed to be a biopic, get that, of W. C. Handy, the great. Pianist, songwriter, early you know he he jazz educator, um, someone who went around the, the the South and you know collated all kinds of um, he was you know long before the Smithsonian's did it W C Handy was um, documenting the blues the Delta blues right that that was a thing that he did so W C Handy is this amazing figure who, who wears a lot of hats. And he's a really interesting guy in his own right. And this purports to be a biopic. And the biopic's angle, so in case you didn't know, Matt King Cole plays W.C. Andy, which is just about as wrong as you can possibly imagine in (laughs) every single way. There's just nothing right about, about that particular characterization. If memory serves, Andy wasn't even... Principally a pianist, am I right about this? Wasn't he a trumpeter? I mean, no, he was no. I don't know. Composer. Yeah, he's a composer, but I think his first instrument was it was it was trumpet. Like I'm sure he played piano, but he was not a pianist. First of all, right? Handy was a trumpeter, a cornet player, right, and a and a composer of you know significant uh, importance, right? So, Nat King Cole plays W. C. Handy in this biopic, and what the movie it completely eschews the real details because they're interesting, but not drama dramatic. It eschews the real details of W.C. Handy's life to give us a black version of the jazz singer, right? So the jazz singer, the great Al Jolson picture is about a guy who sort of leaves the, leaves the shuttle behind and becomes, you know, puts on blackface and becomes a great jazz singer, right? He leaves his Jewish roots behind him, right? So, tell me, you see, Handy's great conflict in this film is, Daddy's a preacher, and his dad is played by this great black actor named Juano Hernandez, who is like, he's like James Earl Jones before the letter. Like, he's James Earl Jones 60 years ago. He's this amazing presence, and he's a severe...
2: And Nat's father
1: was a preacher, too. So just... But yeah, so maybe there was... You know, and right. Nat is from this part of the world like that's from uh, he's from mobile right so i mean he's from he's from the deep south right um yeah so what's fascinating is you know there's this preacher father and then poor wc handy just likes to play in low down juke joints and he and then the, the movie has him singing songs associated with handy you know that handy composes um What's worthy about the film is all of the jazz people who are in it, right? So, there's some great performances in the film, even though it's a shit film, right? Um, <laughs> so, you know, Nat King Cole plays WC Handy. Eartha Kit is like this, this, Singer, dancer, woman of low repute. I'm pretty who sure she's had,
2: Catwoman, Mike. I don't know what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> well, in this film, her name is Go-Go Germaine. So, <laughs> okay. Go- Go-Go Germaine. And it's Eartha Kid at her earthiest. I mean, she is amazing in this film. But it also has Pearl Bailey. Um, it has Cab Calloway. It has Ella Fitzgerald. It has Mahalia Jackson. Right. Wow, so it's got, okay. It's got all of these proper singers, you know, some of whom are, you know, quite amazing, right? So, you know, Pearl Bailey gets to do some dumb comedy um, and and a little bit of singing. She's not a great singer, but she gets to do some singing. Um, Mahalia Jackson gets to do some of Handy's hymns composed for church. So that's appropriate, right? She gets to belt those out. Um, and then there's this weird scene where Ella Fitzgerald, leading the Ella Fitzgerald group, plays some... W C Handy songs, you know. Um sadly, Cab Callaway does not sing in the film. Um, huh. he, you know, he's he's there as like a bartender and I
2: mean, he was course, a bit of an actor. I mean he was like I believe like did sport in life and you know, so he
1: And let's not forget the Blues brothers.
2: Well we could if you wanted to. He's
1: in a- <laughs> kids if you haven't seen blues brothers he's in it so anyway well, that's a um,
2: problematic movie now <laughs> so many
1: ways but oh deeply and yet cab calloway steals the entire fucking movie like he gets to do a, a a song in the film and it's like the best song in the movie well that or ray charles you know well basically everyone besides the blues brothers gets a good song because yeah. uh aretha franklin has a great song in that movie too so Anyway, so this is basically just a black version of the jazz singer and Nat King Cole's WC Handy is trying to negotiate his spiritual side with his I love Jazz side. That's the whole movie, right? And Nat King Cole is just about as far away from like a Delta Blue singer as you can fucking get. You know, I mean, he's just not a belter. Um, and even his renditions of religious songs in the movie have Nat King Cole all over them. You know, he, he just is not. Imagine Nat King Cole singing "How Great Thou Art." I mean, what he would do to those diphthongs—it's just not legal.
2: There is uh-huh. a there's an album of him singing spirituals. I, I've got it on that 22 album set. Haven't listened yet. Heard bad things about it. So
1: yeah, because he's you know, look, he is, That's not his métier, right? I mean, I mean, to use a different example, I've talked about this before. Um, Elvis Presley, when Elvis Presley sings religious songs he is a phenomenal interpreter of religious music. He is, he is fucking brilliant. And he is like a goddamn Delta blues singer who feels it. You don't ever feel, at least I don't feel with that kind of music. Like Nat King Cole is deeply invested in the religiosity of the moment. He's such an inimitable stylist that he can't undo himself in order to do these songs. So it's a terrible film, but like it's a, it's a train wreck. It's fun to watch. Just because he's so wrong for the fucking part, you know, like he can play the piano, you know, he can sing. It's just that he can't sing in any of the styles, really, that he's being asked to sing in. A weird, a weird movie. A Yeah. Weird movie. He
2: always wanted to be kind of a transmedia property guy, right? He wanted to yeah. do it. Sinatra did it. And he just, his theatrical career was kind of star-crossed, is, is my impression, in other words. He just, yeah. Who didn't get the kind of projects, and I don't know whether maybe you know not everybody's an actor. You know, you can sing and maybe you can't act.
1: Yeah. You know, and it's not you know and it's just it's not a role made for him. It's exactly wrong. It's just he's the wrong guy for this part. I'm not sure, you know, who would be right for the part. It needs to be someone, you know, who has sort of religious roots but who is a genuine kind of blues right. belter or singer, you know. And again, that's like anyone except Nat King Cole, you know?
2: But, Um, all that said,
0: the album... It's an interesting album, yeah.
3: I've searched each hole and corner From the battery to the Bronx From the most exclusive to the honky-tonks I've sought her at the movie houses, cabarets, and parks, advertising the
2: age. I think it's pretty good because, you know, but at least my theory on it is so this is, this is the Nelson Riddle one that I happened to pick out, and it was partially because nice. I was interested about the movie, and my God, it's a fucking Nelson Riddle album. I mean, you, you know, the the bass clarinet comes in, the little riffs that he does with Sinatra there they are again and you know it's a uh, and I think handing away I mean he's our great you know inventor in sense or, or of the blues or at least you know the best known first composer with blues in the title but of course St. Louis blues is not a straight blues nope. and he is kind of a sophisticate in his way and of course Nelson Riddle is a sophisticate and to some degree Nat King Cole is a sophisticate so for me and I think Cole sings with some feeling on this. He's not ever going to be uh, an earthy, as you say, Delta Blues style singer. But in in Riddle's world, singing these tunes that themselves are not, for the most part, 12-bar, you know, standard issue blues, I, I think it works pretty well. You know, one thing to remark about all these records is, is that for Cole, an album is 12 songs and 30 minutes. Sinatra, it's more like 14 or 15 in 40 minutes. And I don't know why that particularly was that way, but it just is that Sinatra on Capital, for the most part, his records, there are a couple short ones, but for the most part, they run 40 minutes, sometimes a little bit more. Cole, it's 30 minutes and you're out. Uh, and this is another one like that. So I wasn't, I, I guess I enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to. What do you think of the music in this as opposed to the questionable film?
1: Yeah, I, I, as an album, you know, I have all kinds of, you know, issues with this. I like the, the if I can forget for a second that this is somehow supposed to be about W.C. Handy, but it's really hard to do that. Um, then I, you know, there are a couple of songs here that I like that I think are suited to Cole. Um, I think his rendition of Careless Love, Swinging, I like that. I also like that uh, Chante Lavas, that's right up his street but basically in my view any song on this album and that's all but like four of them with the word blues in the title is going to be less than convincing okay the riddle orchestrations are you know riddle's a wonderful orchestrator you know and I, it's just i i feel stupid because one of the things i hate is when people can't get past what something is supposed to be to appreciate it for what it is right and if i could forget for a minute that this is associated with A pretty risible film about WC Handy. I ought to be able to appreciate Cole's wonderful voice and these reimagined blues classics in a Nelson Middle orchestration. But I I find it hard to get past that, which Mm, is probably a defect on my part because I I hate it when people do that. You know, they're like, Elvis Presley shouldn't sing Nirvana. Well, you know, but let's just think about what does it mean when he does sing it? Forget about he's not, you know, Kurt Cobain, you know? Um, uh, and I, I, so I'm doing that thing that I hate. The people do when they don't like something. They say, "Well, it's not true to the original," or whatever. And I, I feel a little bit guilty of that. I like Cole's voice here. I like Riddle's orchestrations. I like it all better when I can forget that it has anything to do with W. C. Handy. Um, I just, you know, and maybe it's just I'm mad because How
2: about W. C. Fields with that. Someone help? should do.
1: Yeah, someone should do a W. C. Handy mm-hmm. biopic. He was a phenomenally important wonderful figure who wrote tons of music and, and played a huge role in in preserving the links between say blues and jazz. Like he's he's a monumental figure underappreciated in its own right and that the film does him such a disservice really gets up my nose. Um, okay. But like I said, some of the songs I like better than others. Chanté-la-ba. I heard her
3: say just so La That means in Creole, them low. I like that pretty word, Chante Le Bar. She likes her blues play sweetly and slow. Oh, Chante Le I can't forget that serenade. And if you listen.
1: Uh, Careless love, I just. I Adore that rendition. I think it's really nice. But yeah, I, I have a hard time getting past some of the other stuff, and that's probably a personal problem that I should get therapy for.
2: <laughs> shouldn't we all? Yeah, I, you know, again, having never seen the film and really having no intention of doing so, um,
1: <laughs> I feel like you should, and then re-listen to the album.
2: <laughs> oh, great! So, so, gotta find a way to ruin it for myself. Uh, you know, again, I, I think, as I said, from this project or whatever I, i've learned a couple of things one is that i probably like cole the vocalist more than cole the quote unquote jazzer um <laughs> and another thing is is that man you know i'm starting to learn with mr friedwald's help and and, and just i guess aging the signatures of these various arrangers of you know of this yeah. classic era of song and it's like man yeah yeah that really is nelson riddle isn't it you know it's like it really has got a fingerprint, and I guess seeing it out of the context of Sinatra, where there's always that mix, and that really was, I mean, I don't listen to a lot of classic era pop singing. It's just not, you know, my particular area of of interest. So I don't have, like, lots of other things by Riddle other than the stuff of Sinatra. And now it's like, oh, my gosh, here we go again. And, and I think it it fits a little better. I think that it, it works, and I was trying to decide why. And again, as I said, that all three participants – are interested in jazz and blues to some degree. I don't know that Nelson Riddle cares that much about blues, but but they also have this kind of second generation. Even though I know uh, Handy's very early, but kind of sophistication about them. It, it's not you know it, it's kind of there's acidification. You know, they're we don't know that Handy ever used a cigarette holder, but and, and so it they the match in a way. And and, and so I, I just I find it a, a really it's a pretty good album. One of my favorites by him that I've heard so far. But, yeah, I'm not thinking of this disastrous film. And as I said, in general, the sense I got from reading the bio was that, you know, he kept wanting to break on through and find a way that he could be on the screen and not just be a singer but be a media presence in in other areas. And it was just, for whatever reason, you know, he was in Cat Baloo. That was a film my sister used to love to watch. I have very dim memories of that. I think Jane Fonda's in it and He's a bit part player in it. Uh, this was Wait, soon before. Who's a, did. who's a bit part player in it? Yeah. Nat King Cole is in so the film. So he is. Cat Blue. You know, he
1: he's yeah. in a shit ton of movies, by the way.
2: Uh, yeah, but but never he never breaks through as a film star,
1: right? He right. Just
2: yeah. So anyway, uh, I recommend it if you're a fan of Nelson Riddle, if you're a fan of Cole, but perhaps don't watch the movie because uh, it might well, work for you.
1: Watch it, just you know. And then go read a book about W. C. Handy. You know, uh, there you go. Go so we'll find out more about W. C. Handy. Yeah, he was in a lot of he was in a lot of movies. He's actually, believe it or not, in Citizen Kane. Um, God
2: Lord, I. I yeah.
1: yeah, he plays a piano player uh, oh, at okay. the, uh, in one short scene in the film. Um, he's in a lot of um, movies. He's also you hear him, believe it or not, in Kiss Me Deadly. If you remember that film.
2: Um. Uh, not well. No.
1: <laughs> kiss me deadly you don't remember kiss me deadly oh my god well he you can hear him in that scene uh in that film and he's in you know he's in some good films or um, films by decent filmmakers he's in a, a fair amount of crap but um he's in a he's in a, a a pretty good samuel fuller film cat blue i don't know that that's any good but you know he's in a, he's in a couple of other pretty good movies so. yep
2: yeah, uh, another camp classic.
1: and let's not forget He's in the. He sings the title cut to The Adventures of Haji Baba, an undying, deathless sword and sword and sandal romance. So. <laughs> okay.
3: Do
0: I hear you
3: saying you got hurt? Did you say that she's a flimflam flirt? Are you saying that's some double-dealing,
0: darling,
3: and did you dirt? Well, bub, welcome, welcome, welcome to the club.
2: The next album we looked at was Welcome to the Club. It's 1959. All these are capital albums. Dave Cavanaugh was the arranger, and the Basie Orchestra is the orchestra. Basie's not there, but the orchestra's there. I think probably unbilled. Didn't know Mr. Cavanaugh's work. How would you characterize Welcome to the Club?
1: I don't know. I mean, the other arrangers, you know, maybe you can identify. I, I don't – do you feel like you have a signature from this guy that Just you can kind of
2: – Vegas Swinger kind of thing? I mean, you know, it, it's, it, it's not real – distinctive, but, but it's just this kind of hard swinging. I wouldn't say that I know him as an arranger yet. I guess the idiom to me is Nat goes to Vegas and, you know, just kind of a tough edged album with a lot of uh, Blair and brass.
1: Yeah. I was struck with, I don't know. It felt like there are certain songs that um, I would have associated with Sinatra and the Vegas era. And maybe this is because I've been listening to some of that stuff. I'm not entirely convinced by the arrangements on some of these songs i think like mood indigo is way over egged um, <laughs> it's just way too i feel like he's way too busy for for what that song is i don't know some songs i like better than others i like the title cut i thought that was kind of interesting i'm trying to remember which other one stuck with me i thought the late show was an interesting song i don't know if you liked it
3: is cozy in the park tonight When you cuddle up and hold me tight Stars above they seem to know We're putting on the late, late show Hear the crazy music in the trees See the flowers dancing in the breeze Old man moon begins to glow He's joining in the late,
2: late show
1: it's unfamiliar um,
2: anyway, right? That's not yeah. one I'd ever heard before.
1: And then, uh, well, he does weird things again with, with words, you know, fireflies. Um, <laughs> he, he sings, he just does things to vowels sometimes. <laughs> I also like She's Funny that way quite a bit. I think that's a fairly interesting version of that song. Um, you normally hear that taken at a little bit slower pace, and it's, it's, uh, it's fairly brisk. And in addition to being fairly brisk, it's it's got kind of a peppy arrangement, which I found a little, I don't know, I liked it. I don't know, it's just, it's odd. I don't think I've ever heard the song kind of arranged that way before. You would think that would be a song right in the ballad wheelhouse almost, right? You'd slow it down and uh, take a lot of the, you know, peppier brass punctuation out of it, and instead it's kind of there, you know? I'm like, that's kind of weird. But yeah, I like I like the album. The, the point here really is Nat's voice, I guess. The, the arrangements were less interesting to me. Um, they were less obtrusive than the other two albums, I thought. They were less prevalent. You know, They were a little more understated. Maybe that's a good thing.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think my sense is if I'm rem- remembering correctly, well, to some degree, I think Nat helped Riddle get established. and I think Kavanaugh was a younger arranger, and so maybe not as uh, dominating a presence. I mean, mainly for me, it's just, you know, this is Cole doing the kind of somewhat, not as much, swaggering persona that you associate with Sinatra in the capital years, you know, the kind of uh, somewhat, there's a couple songs that are a little bit cynical and, yeah. uh, you know, the hard swinging sound and everything, and it's it's, it's a little bit more vegas you know, and he can certainly do it, you know, if he's got to hit those high notes and to end the song and and again, of course the artic- we haven't talked much about Nat as a singer other than he's got this quality of voice, amazing texture, a little smoke in it at times. He's got this incredible articulation. Uh, yeah He really very careful at, at pronouncing words. And then as, as Mike talked about, he suffered from vowel movements.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> they just
2: sometimes it's like where did that where did that sound go Nat what's going on? Say the word you'll be
3: heard I'll be there
2: And apparently he when he was starting out saying in a kind of weird accent and then they said we kind of got over that but I don't know whether it's just it just seems a little I mean I finally I think one reason that he is not been as canonized, you know, race may play a role, a lot of things may play a role, but is it you don't get that quite in, in an era that for a long time at least prized authenticity and the rebel figure, which meant that Sinatra translated fairly well as traditional pop singers went for the rock and roll era? Cole never quite, you know, it always seems a little bit performative and just slightly artificial, as beautiful as it is. So, you know, I, I thought he did a pretty good job selling the persona of the, you know, kind of a swinging bachelor who's seen it all, but, but you know, not quite as convincingly as Sinatra.
1: I, I realize now why I was noticing the kind of punctuated brass in particular. This is the Count Basie orchestra class. Um, yep, yep. It, uh, Count Basie couldn't play for legal reasons, so there's a different pianist, but this is the fucking Count Basie orchestra, which I always think is funny, Count Basie couldn't play for legal reasons. Did he ever really play, you know? <laughs> I mean, was, Count Basie's not what you would call a, a He's great not a
2: maximalist, no. Player.
1: Oh, no, not at all. Um, so anyway, I suddenly realized that's why it was reminding me of the Vegas thing. You know, on that Vegas set that I just got of Sinatra, the first disc is him playing live with the Count ba- Basie Orchestra. And um, a couple of the brass punctuations on the various songs remind me. There's a moment on one of the Sinatra songs where he's getting ready to let the band cut loose and he calls everyone, get ready now. We're about to lift the whole building and move it 10 feet that way.
0: Uh-huh. And then the
1: brass take over and you're like, oh shit, you know, it's, you're, you're, you know what he means. And there are several moments where the brass punctuate, especially the brass punctuate on this album. And you're like, God damn, you know, they're really, they're really blowing their, Mode does not fit well with the Nat King Cole, Cool Cat, smooth performer mode, whereas Sinatra can belt from time to time. You know, he can kind of, he can, he has that tough guy persona where he's like, you know, you know, it's cool when he says we're going to lift the building and move it ten feet in that direction. You, you have the sense that he knows like what's going on and he's part of it. And Cole feels slightly. Slightly alienated from the proceedings, just like Nicole, the singer, and then there's orchestration kicking the shit out of the song behind him. Not when he's singing, crucially. Like, he doesn't sing over that stuff. They punctuate around him, which is kind of interesting. Maybe kept right. Cameron knew something,
2: you know. Certainly, Cole can be a rhythmic singer. I mean, I think in terms of just where he's placing the beats, he's fine. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he does, he shows that on uh, the St. Louis Blues album, and he certainly shows that here
3: look out where you're going there's danger ahead the signal is showing a definite red look out what you're doing
2: you're caught in a pot whatever she's
3: brewing stay out of the pot
2: so he's got that feeling but yeah i don't know that as opposed to persona i don't know whether that's it's quite as effective it's just uh, he was kind of presented as a picture of you know the suburban man with a happy family uh, it was interesting because like he had one wife and then he married this woman who was a little bit more sophisticated and a little paler and then apparently towards the end of his life he was dating this while still married this is a Swedish actress, so. You know, his love life was maybe a little bit more complicated than it was presented in media. But, you know, he's not quite, I don't think he had quite the reputation as the, the ultimate bachelor swinger that Sinatra did. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, rhythmically, again, the jazz a- aspect of it works well. Yeah, there's a at least one kind of shocking drum solo. <laughs> it's like, well, OK, you know, you're yeah. going a well, little the Bam Bam is loose here, uh, which I, I don't know. You know, maybe some of those turn up. Maybe I, I don't listen much. To Sinatra with Basie, that that era is just not. I mean, I feel like the voice is already starting to go a little bit. I just kind of yeah. I tend to stick to the Capitals.
0: No, um, I agree.
1: I, no, no argument there. It's just it is interesting to hear him in that setting because he has that kind of tough guy persona oh, that yeah. fits with you know. And this is the best band in the world persona, you know. He's he's it's the swagger between the two is. You know, of the same kind. That's what's interesting. Yeah. Even if the instrument is no longer up to snuff.
2: Yeah, right. And uh, so, yeah, uh, this is just, I, I guess, uh, and again, this is really both of us delving for the first time into Cole's vocal albums on Capitol. You know, it was not an area I ever thought of exploring, and I think it's fairly rewarding. I mean, I'm never going to be a guy that sits down and listens to a lot of the stuff, you know, of an evening. It's just, it, it's, I like it, but. It's not my second or third love. So, you know, I, I want to kind of work my way through a few more of these and see which ones, like, you know, are keepers and which ones, like, love is a thing just for one reason or another annoy me enough that despite their merits, I'm not going to keep in the, ro- the rotation. This one's pretty and on that good. And note. <laughs> yeah, oh, we're getting there. Yeah, because I had, you know, the arrangers for each of these albums, and I finally realized, oh, who was on Ramblin' Rose? Oh, yeah, Satan. That was, that's right.
0: Rambling
1: Not, not, not Satan. He did actually arrange a couple of other albums, but
2: yeah. <laughs> well, and it's, you know, we're going to end because I felt like we had to look at at least one aspect of his purely populist stuff. You know, Nat would try anything. And, and, and he in would. The, in the biography, you know, Friedwald try, it makes a or presents it rhetorically as a virtue. He never stopped exploring. He never stopped experimenting. And I, I don't know that it wasn't a virtue, but but it also can seem a little bit undiscriminating or just pain-slutty sometimes. It's like, nah, did you have to do that? So he had this huge hit, and this was another one, you know, I don't know, I, I don't feel like quite with, with Sinatra that narrative tends to be, of the capital years at least, the albums he made. And I think he was a fine chart performer, but but the narrative tends to be these projects that have become canonized. With Cole the narrative is more and then this hit big, you know, whether it was Nature Boy or Mona Lisa or Ramblin' Rose. And Ramblin' Rose haven't hit big. He makes a whole album of I, I wouldn't call this what would you call this? It's not really country and western. I don't know what's the genre here.
1: Um, the genre is Ray Charles is is cashing in, Why the Fuck Can't I? That's oh. what the genre is.
2: Okay. <laughs> genre is cash-in. So well, since look, he,
1: I'm not kidding. Ray Charles, earlier that fucking year, did his album, I forget the exact title, something about um, modern sounds and country music or something. And it made bank. He, he, he did really well with that album. I, I can't believe that it's an accident that later the same year, Nat's like, hey.
2: Right. Well, and Bramlin' Rose just... Hit like a motherfucker, and he's like, "Okay, well, let's do some more of this, you know." It, yeah. Uh, "Ramblin' Rose" is a sing-long song. I will say this: it is it's fifteen percent less murder-inducing than "Lazy, Hazy, Crazy Days of Summer," but it ain't great. Um, and then I, these are kind of country and western folk songs, maybe distinctive for. A,
1: you're speaking of "Wolverton Mountain," "Goodnight Irene." What the
2: fuck? And I, I, and i I think, I feel like you're a little bit more tuned into country and western in general and you know some of more of the greats and everything i don't i don't i've never heard of fullerton mountain i've heard of goodnight irene but yeah a lot of these are not familiar to me uh they're all done with a very prominent chorus
1: a very white apparently oh lord
2: <laughs> they're wider than i am which is not easy to achieve and uh the bass the electric bass is very prominent in these arrangements Ugh. you know i mean you really can you know it's just So it's a different world. And of course, this is 62. So this is towards the end, though, I I don't think he realized it at the time of of Nat's life. He dies very young of lung cancer. He is entering, I mean, we're entering a new musical world here. Uh, Mitch Miller would have been proud. So what Uh, can you say about Ramblin' Rose?
1: (laughs) So on the one hand, right, so the the nadir of the album, by the way, is Skip to My Lou. That is (laughs) far and away the worst moment on the album. Goodnight Irene is a fucking classic compared to Skip to My Lou.
3: is on the hillside, big as a mule. Rabbits on the hillside, big as a mule. Rabbits on the hillside, big as a mule. Skip to my loo, my darling.
1: Skip, skip, skip to my loo. Skip, skip. Horrible, horrible thing. So, you know, it's worth pointing out, lots and lots of jazz and um Pop vocalists of the era turned to country and western music, right? Bing Crosby, Dean Martin, and crucially Ray Charles. But there were others, right? Like, this is a turn. Lots of guys, you know, there are plenty of, you know, cowboy albums by Bing fucking Crosby, who is the farthest thing from a cowboy ever, right? But he sings a bunch of these songs. Dean Martin had like a line in this shit in the '60s where he sang a whole bunch of you know country songs. Like it was a it was a whole sideline to his career. You know, to Sinatra's credit, he never tried that, and I think that was a smart, wise choice on yeah, his part. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you know, uh, Dean Martin is credible in, in some of those songs. Some of those songs are well done. I think not all of them, but some of them, right. So Nat's just doing what, he's just following everyone else's lead here, I think. It's like, there's there's money to be made, and then there are songs, you know? And his voice is wonderful. I think the rank insincerity sincerity of his voice in singing material, like Goodnight Irene and Skip to My Lou, is only magnified by the horrendous chorus behind him. <laughs> I think the only way you would like this album is if you were deep into these songs if you're not deep into these songs or you're just a Nat King Cole worshiper. Otherwise, you know, taste has to kick in at some point and you have to say as glorious as his voice is, this is just a horrendous, horrendous mistake. Um, I'm glad, I, I, I don't know, you'll have to tell me, uh, I think the the pseudo rock and roll number, of Good Times, I hope that was just a, a one-off, and that there isn't a Nat King Cole sings, you know, uh, oh rock sings, and roll. Uh, yeah. Nat King Cole sings the Bobby Soxers hits of the early fifties. I, I feel like
2: there's a song that he did that was like Nat King Cole or Mister Cole won't rock and roll. I, I can't. So um, there was a, a kind of a joke song that came up with him that had that beat to it. I he never. I, I don't think he ever completely dives into those waters and does just a full record of quote-unquote rock, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. That's probably the best for all of us that he didn't.
1: Yeah, no, look, the voice is wonderful, but, you know, like I said, his strong suit, in my view, as an interpreter of songs, is not as an emotional interpreter, you know, it is as a distinct stylist. And I think this is, these songs are as far as you can go in divesting the songs of any emotional content and simply turning them into stylistic markers and when you go that far it's like well then why even bother i mean it's just it's just a place marker
2: well, one thing he gets to do though is he really goes low on a couple of these. I mean, he'll sing He some go startlingly low, startlingly low notes. Well, I think it's the cigarettes that's kept giving him those extra notes, you know. But 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 because it's like I don't I don't recall him singing quite so spectacularly low. Maybe he just felt like what the fuck I might as well do it because it's fun and these songs you can't break the mood on them. I don't know, but yeah, it's it's kind you of like,
1: whoa. I, I, I would say. Good Times, that sort of pseudo-rocker, it gives you a sense of, like, you know, Sam Cooke does this, but with just a little more feeling and soul, you know? Uh, Not the song, but Sam Cooke does this, and of course, the stupid Mitch Miller chorus behind him, right? But, you know, Sam Cooke makes that transition from one form of music to pop music, and he's a distinctive stylist, but you never have the sense with Sam Cooke that he doesn't give a fuck, you know? You always have the sense that there's an investment, and it's uh, no diss to that. King Cole. I just, I mean, how can you care about some of these songs? You, you just can't.
2: I mean... Oh, I don't think you're... So, I mean, I literally, I think the the level of engagement with this album is singing along. I don't think you're supposed to listen
1: right. critically. But then in that case, you know... Why do you need Nat King Cole to, to sing the lead vocals because you Nat know,
2: like, King Cole needs your money. That's why. Go on, that's <laughs> very simple. That's why.
1: It's, I, it's it's like having Pavarotti. You know, sing. I don't know. It's a dumb example, but you know, it would be like having some amazing trained singer sing some. You know.
2: Yeah, he, he's over equipped for the work at hand. That's
1: for exactly. Sure. He's over equipped, and he truly doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> nor should he. <laughs> nor should he. You know, I mean, here's the you know, again. Here's the difference, right? Ray Charles sings "Your Cheatin' Heart." And he has a little hiccup in his voice and everything, and you have a feeling like Ray Charles is pissed that she's cheating on him. You know, right, right. Ray gives a fuck. You know, Ray's like, "You all cheating?" Ah, you know, he's like, "He hurts." You know, and Nat's like, "Count the money, count the royalties coming." And I don't think Nat feels a thing while he's singing that song. I think the song that he feels the most on this is uh, "When You're Smiling." That's really kind of in his wheelhouse. You know, "When You're Smiling." Yeah, but that's. That's Nat, you know, but I don't believe for a second that he hurts because of her cheating heart. And at least Ray Charles, he's convincing, you know, that his heart is aching over her cheating. Like you have to have if you're going to sing this music at some level of investment, you have to be you have to at least pretend to be emotionally engaged. Right. Dean Martin does it. Bing Crosby can do it. I don't think Nat can. And I, I don't know that he had that gear. I don't know that he had the gear of deep emotional investment in a song. He is just a supreme stylist and that sounds like an attack and I don't mean it to be. It's just that you don't go to him for emotional investment in music. I don't anyway. I go to him to listen to someone as a vocalist.
2: Friedwald argues that as towards the end that he is a more profound singer than at the beginning. I certainly am, you know, again, I think there's, as a singer, he certainly, you know, I I just I was shocked listening to these records, and again having never really listened to Nat King Cole much, about how accomplished a singer he had become, you know, just just as a singer, it's like geez, you yeah, know, he really could do this, and I think, you know, until the last ten years or so, I didn't necessarily have my singer as singer ears particularly attuned, you know, just just what are they doing technically. Stop listening for sincerity. Stop listening for emotional impact. To start listening for technique, and and ability, and presence, and mobility. And he's he's got a lot of that. I mean, he is. It's it's kind of shocking that somebody who's that good a piano player ended up developing to that good a singer. But yeah, for you know this this album, is just I want to throw in something. You know, he does two or three Spanish language albums.
1: yeah, Yeah, I would love to hear those because here's a guy whose stylistic imprint is going to make him, you know, d- just the enunciation is going to make it worthwhile to hear him sing in Spanish.
2: I'll shoot those your way at some point. Um, I-, I feel like not knowing anything of the language, I'm just kind of left with it. So the songs are familiar, but, 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 you know, I'm not, it's a little hard. I feel like he's probably mispronouncing that, but I've mispronounced it worse. And I can't tell, you know, <laughs> who can say, but yeah, he really, he was, he does an album that's, like written like a play or something that's all original songs that has a book with it. I, I've, I've not seen or run across this one. It did not come in the set. Friedwald talks about it that extensively. So really experimental and innovator. I mean, someone who, you know, kind of openly was saying, you know, I'm trying to be successful here. I want to, I want to make a good living. I want to, I think he was both a committed, he was a committed musician. I don't know. I mean, where you get, you know, what does it mean to say committed artist? I don't know. I mean, he was he was never subpar. He always paid very close attention to what he was doing. Quality control was pretty high, Uh, not always in song selection, but in his performance. But it's a little harder to take him as a guy trying to express something. If that's what you think an artist is, you know, I did this because I had to say this. It's more like I, I did this because I thought it was a job worth doing, and I thought I'd get a fair price for it, you know.
1: And yeah, I don't I don't mean to diminish at all the pleasure I get from his voice. I mean, I love Nat King Cole's voice. I love his singing. You know, it's just I don't go there for emotional investment. Right. I go there because there are a few stylists who sound like him, and he's a lot of fun to try and sing along with. You know, you really have to kind of wrap your mouth around some of those diphthongs and vowels to, to do what he does. It's kind of cool. <laughs>
2: That's right. He's, yeah.
1: he's, he's kind of, he's, he's, he has this thing going. He is an instantly identifiable singer. You can hear three notes and you know it's Nat.
2: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Very much so. I mean, just in, in, in a striking way, uh, just yeah. an amazing instrument that he, that he sang with. And, you know, it's just a few years later that he's gone and you get the feeling that he was working hard at it and on the make. Every year of his life, you know, just trying to push ahead, find new things to do, try out new approaches. And, uh, you know, one of Capitol's great singers, but someone who I think is in a way, I think, lingers on in the popular imagination to some degree, but has not been quite canonized and collected in a way that some of the pure jazz singers have been. You know, your Ella Fitzgerald, you know, I, I feel like is Ella Fitzgerald or is Frank Sinatra or Billie Holiday ever out of print? Would you ever have a difficulty finding one of their albums? I think largely the answer is no. Mm. Whereas with Cole, I feel like other than these compilations or whatever, given record, you might have some. And some of them, you know, like Ramblin' Roses, that's probably okay. But, you know, it's just he's he's not paid that kind of cultural attention. And, you know, certainly as a cultural figure, he's,
1: he's amazing. He, he's been uh, sliced and diced and repackaged a gazillion ways. Um, oh, well,
2: the greatest hits for sure. I mean, that, that's the thing, is that he yeah. is he's very much seen as a greatest hits artist, I, I think, as opposed to having this monument that right now, actually, I'm not sure it is in print, but, you know, there have been many, many times where Sinatra's capital works have been collected. And, at one, you know, there is a briefcase of everything he did in a reprise. I mean, that was for the ultra fanatics. It's gone. but I mean, it existed. But, you know, I don't know that anyone's ever, like, the collected works of Nat King Cole on, on Capitol. The closest we came is that uh, Mosaic did, years ago, all the works by the trio on Capitol. And that was, like, 14 CDs or something. It was enormous. Maybe 18. I mean, the guy was – other thing to say about him, it's unbelievably prolific, you know, multiple albums every year.
1: I'm yeah. going to add to that and tell you a story that you probably don't know. Um, okay. That for a period in the late 40s, he was actually a, a music label impresario. He founded a record label, um, I bet you didn't know that, called Sunset Records. It was when he was in California. Um, he founded it under a false name. Uh, it was founded by Eddie Laguna, who was actually Nat not King Cole. And they put out a grand total of, as far as I can tell, five albums. Okay. Two by Charlie Ventura. Two by Andre Previn playing jazz, and one by um, uh, Martin Denny.
2: And I'm, I'm sure that Friedwald covers that in the book. I just, having read it over a month ago, I don't have total recall of that. And you know, the business side, he was an innovator in that area too. But but I didn't focus as much on it. But yeah, no, he's an amazing guy. Yeah. Well, do you have any pop matters aside from Ramblin' Rose?
1: Yeah, sure. Some things, I'll probably tell you more about it once I've had more of a chance to kind of dig into it. Um, I just started getting into Georgia Ann Muldrow, who is a kind of it person right now in um, the soul, neo-soul rap slash jazz crossover universe just listened to her album Overload. Um, with uh, It's it's interesting. I'm, I've only listened to it once, but her name pops up on a lot of best of lists where people talk about the future of jazz connecting to other forms of music. So interesting person maybe to keep an eye on. I'll let you know what I think once I've dug in a little more deeply. Um, some recent re-listens, but the, the new acquisition that I have was I picked up. Um, I picked up two things. One is Gang of
2: Four. Do you know them at all? I've heard that name. I, I don't know that I know their music.
1: I used to have. Uh, I still have actually. That's Entertainment. Their most famous album. I picked up their compilation album, modestly called A Brief History of the 20th Century. Um, <laughs> okay. So if you like um uh slightly melodic post punk music um they they would be your uh they would be your cup of tea. They are uh political punks or were political punks, the British um you know lovely songs called to hell with poverty, I love a man in uniform, stuff like that. Um so if you haven't listened to them you might want to dig in at some point. Um and then I also picked up, this is not really what i want to talk about. I picked up Robert Glasper's Everything's Beautiful. Lots of uh, uh, pop and rap stars on this. It's a Miles Davis tribute. And it's got some Miles Davis vocal samples. It's listed as a Miles Davis remix album, but it's really Robert Glasper in the studio inviting people in to re-record or record over things. So it includes people like Georgia Ann Muldrow, as well as, um, Stevie Wonder, Eric Badu is on the album, a couple of rappers, blah blah blah. So that's kind of interesting. No, but the thing I've got that I really like that I think um you might like, although I don't know, you you probably have a low threshold for this shit, um is uh there's been a release uh, uh it's it's been out now almost 10 years uh called American Treasure. It's a four disc release of uh stuff from Tom Petty from the vaults. Oh, okay. Um, so a lot of air shots, a fair number of live cuts, some deep cuts, some demos, um, and a couple of, of the singles, but it's mostly a deeper dive into, uh, into his music. And, uh, I have to say, uh, I kind of like it. The, the, you know, h- hearing him sing some of his songs under certain circumstances to certain constituencies really carries some weight. Hearing him do like a live version of Southern accents to like an audience in Gainesville, Florida means something, you know, different than like if he played it in, I don't know, Boston. And I, uh, I, I, I guess I just forgot or I, I forget easily how long the career was and how many kind of different iterations, you know, besides his work as a solo artist, there's the traveling Wilbury stuff. There's the stuff he does with Jeff Lynn. There's the stuff he does with Mud Crutch, you know, he has a kind of long career and uh, this, this four disc set digs pretty deeply into all of those um, areas there. I don't think there's actually any traveling Wilbury stuff on here. So, it's mostly live things. There's so some alternate versions. You know, there's a nice alternate version of Rebel. So, it's, it's, I don't know. I, 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 like it. I don't know. You might hate this, but, uh, I thought it was pretty good. I don't know where you stand on Tom Petty. On his throat, maybe. I have no idea. No,
2: I don't hate him. You know, I, I talked about the Wildflowers, uh, LP reissue, which I quite like. But yeah, he, he's, he's a guy that I've always admired. I think he's hugely talented. Right on the cusp of sometimes he's got something to say and sometimes he's just, he's, He's being a a good, solid rock musician who can always put together an album that works but doesn't necessarily rivet me. Uh, And, you know, I always liked Wildflowers, and I realized later, it's like, Jesus, this is just, this whole fucking thing is about his divorce, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Most of the songs are just to himself. And, okay, you know.
1: He does, like, concept albums. uh, His album, Last DJ, is just a whole fuck you to the music industry. Like, it's the whole album of... Here's what's wrong with the music industry, you know, which is kind of cool. I mean, it it holds up. I think it holds up well. I like it.
2: Yeah, you mentioned that before. So, yep, um, not somebody I'm I'm thinking about a lot, but somebody I think is I like fine. I just you know I I remember he was we had an R A the first year at. at Valpo, who's just like, well, everything Tom Petty did after so-and-so was shit. Yeah. Very was that, strong opinions about, like... Is that Paul or the other guy? No, no the other guy. The, the other guy, guy here that bought us alcohol. I cannot remember <laughs> his name.
1: <laughs> okay, well, interesting. All right.
2: But uh that that's
1: Yeah, uh, just a tip for all the kids out there listening. The best way to get alcohol in college is to get your RA corrupted, so... He buys you alcohol, um, and that way you don't get done in for having alcohol on campus if you've actually co-opted the authority figure on your floor.
2: I'm not sure which direction the co-option went, but, yes, he certainly did get it for us. I don't <laughs> think he needed much turning. I think he was just that way to begin with.
1: But um, We didn't have to flip him. No pressure.
2: <laughs> no, not really. Nah, I think he was just ready to go. Yep. I don't really have anything up in the in the batter's box this time, but maybe next time something will come across the desk. And that includes Jazz Bastard Podcast 216. As always, you can reach us at pat at jazzbastard.com or mike at jazzbastard.com. You can drop me a line on Facebook or look me up on All About Jazz. All About Jazz is a place you can stream the podcast. You can also get it from Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and you can download it or stream it at www.jazzbastard.com. Tune in next time as we discuss music by Lou Donaldson, Hubert Laws, Alex Conde, and Ethan Iverson. We're going to have a little Bud Powell special in there. So look forward to that, and we look forward to talking to you next time. Until then, though, take care.